So today on the 91 Untold Change Project sofa, we have Susan Quilliam. Uh, Susan is a relationship expert, coach, facilitator, and probably most importantly, author of 22 books, most of them on the subject of relationships, that have been produced in 33 countries now, I believe. The reason we wanted to invite Susan to be part of the Change Project is that probably more than anybody we know, She's an expert in how human beings relate to each other, which on the face of it may not sound very interesting from an organizational perspective. But one of the things we know from running change projects is that quite often it, it's not the processes and systems that get in the way, but those intricate relationships between how individuals relate to each other that either makes change sustainable or kicks it into touch. Welcome to the 91 Untold Change Project. The whole universe is in a state of entropy. If you can unlock that higher motivation, they'll be with you. How do you create an environment where people can find meaning at work? That can create the needed culture change. How does radical change happen? You know it's a good business. In terms of our evolution, we were not required to have a conscious understanding of complex systems. What creates great innovation in the social arena? It does it for you taking action. Have some real sense of control over our lives. So welcome, Susan. It's a pleasure to have you here. I want to kick off right at the top. Um, let, let, let's go really broad to begin with. You're an expert on relationships. You obviously deal with change the whole time. What are your thoughts around change? I'm passionate about change. I think it's wonderful. But uh, over the years in my career, I've learned to be quite discerning about when a change is necessary and whether a change is good or bad. A lot of my clients and a lot of my experience with training groups, people are driven to change when perhaps they might be better going you know what, I might be okay as I am. So those caveats aside, I'm passionate about change. But the defining it can often take hours or days, you know, hours with time in between to think about it. And I don't think change can happen in any, in any context unless you're understanding how what you want is underpinned by what you need and what your deeper needs are. If the other people in the group or the other people in the partnership are understanding their deeper needs, but also yours, there has to be a deep understanding of what's going on under the surface. I think that's really interesting. And, and thinking about some of the organisational work we do as well, that's often the bit that's missed off uh, from, as executives put a new programme together or something like that, understanding the deeper needs both their own deeper needs and, and being honest about those is, is often missing. And at the same time, understanding the deeper needs of the, the group of people, the team that, that, that they're working with, quite often they're working only on that surface level. And, and you've got an extra bit, understanding the deeper needs of the customers in the market. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that often gets missed off altogether during the process. And, uh, you yeah. know, consequently, a lot of change processes don't work as well as they could. Correct. Lovely. <laughs> and now, um, I briefly touched on this question at the beginning, but I'd like to just pose it again if I may uh, and that's the question that we ask everyone who comes and visits us on the 91 Untold Change Project sofa um, which is 
How does change happen? I think it is around tipping points. I think people need an awareness of the past and how that influences, an awareness of future and possibilities, an awareness of how they feel internally, an awareness of what's happening around them, an awareness of their mind, their body and, yeah, I'm going to say this, their spiritual soul, whatever that means. And when everything's congruent, it happens in a second. But the lead up to that second, I mean, in some therapeutic contexts, takes 10 years. Uh, My coaching clients can take up to a year, some many shorter. You know, I've done one session changes and sometimes takes a lot longer. In groups, yeah, if you get a group of 30 and you teach a three-hour seminar, then... On average, two or three people will will say afterwards, yeah, you know, that really shifted my thinking. But I think it's around everything coming together. The Germans call that a higher laboredness, that, oh, yeah, of course. Well, of course that wasn't my fault. Or, yeah, of course when I was six, these are all client examples, of course when I was six, that interaction with my father has influenced me all my life. You know what? It doesn't need to. Or not about the past, about the future. Yeah, well... You know, if I imagine myself in that place, that's much more compelling than I am now. I'll change. But, but I think that the work of change, whether you do it individually, which is possible, whether you do it with a coach, a counsellor, a therapist, a trainer, a business coach, or in a group, or just by hanging out with your friends, or just by reading books, or watching videos, or listening to podcasts, that actual change takes a fraction of a second, but the prep takes forever. I, I totally agree with that. I'll often in a, a group be, be talking about change is as simple as walking across a line. Oh, um, just that one step and change has taken place. All of the, the rest of it is getting you ready to take that step. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I, I really like that. Thank you. Moving on, we're talking about relationships and partnerships. One of the quotes that Mason found from one of your books. I will, I will credit Mason so that I'm not pretending I've read every single one of your books. I've followed your career with a lot of interest, but um, one of the, the quotes that, that Mason and I were talking about this morning uh, was, partnership is the source which is now expected to deliver all the hope and happiness that we originally expected to get from the deity. Just so we're on the same page, What's your definition of deity? Well, it comes from the Latin, Deus, and it means God. Uh, And of course, there are many, many, many definitions of God. Uh, In that particular sentence I wrote, it means the other, but in an all-powerful sense. So an external force, whatever that is for you, that is going to take care of everything. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? We were fascinated. Um, I'm fascinated too. Uh, There was a big shift at the beginning of the 1800s towards a lack of belief in the deity, which I think came to fruition certainly in Britain with the First World War and the Second World War. There was a big shift in society. And all of a sudden, you're left with people who don't all firmly believe in heaven. So... As babies were born, you know, we're totally looked after if we have a good childhood. And as we grow up, uh, we go, oh, how can we replicate 
that feeling of safety and validity and uh, success and, and all the good things that come with going, it's fine, God will look after it. And, and I want to recognise here that many people do believe that, but there is sufficient number of people who don't that it shifted our attitude to partnership because absent a deity, who do we turn to? Well, we turn to love. And we expect that our partners are going to give us that sense of security. They're never going to leave. That sense of validity, they're always going to think that, they're, that we are right. They're always going to treat us as if we are right. They're going to give us that almost womb-like uh, feeling of it's going to be okay that people used to get when they believed wholeheartedly and without doubt, wait for it, congruently in the deity. And often in partnership we believe congruently in our partner and we believe in the relationship and then oops, unlike the deity we're human. <laughs> yes. And what happens in partnership is it is more or less physically impossible for a partner to give you well, it's physically impossible for them to give you all of that. It's probably physically impossible for them to give you enough of that for you to be happy and fulfilled in the way you thought you were going to be. And that is one of the reasons why partnerships nowadays are less stable than they used to be. A lot of bad things about the old model, uh, not least, you know, domestic abuse, etc., etc. But one of the things about current models of partnership is that they expect... Uh, divine love and they're going to get human love. Really fascinating. As I'm hearing that I'm also thinking there's an awful lot of people in organizations who are starting to hold the organization, you know, talking about security, validity, uh, everything's going to be okay. Again I'm hearing that within organizations particularly from Millennials yeah. uh, and do you think that's going to be a change as well, or how does that Oh, I think relate? it already is. I mean, we're now looking around all the time for experts to tell us how to be happier, um, for experts to tell us how to be more successful. Um, I looked at the Japanese model for maybe a sense of how things could be, where the Japanese model, model is totally parental. I mean, the deity is our father. He's very occasionally our mother, but usually our father, there's a parental role. But, you know, he will contain us, he will hold us, it'll all be fine. The Japanese model, although it's changing now, the organisational model is you are, you are a salary man and the organisation holds you. And yes, there are far more small um, organisations that don't hold to that model, but I think it's something we have to be really wary of, because absent the deity... Life can be just a constant search for the elements of deity that we hope we find in yeah, par parental organisations, um, parental uh, partnerships, parental friendships in some ways. And then there's the whole problem about how we pass that on to our children and, and help them to grow up without looking to us for the deity that we're not going to be able to provide to them. Okay. And are there ways of, I suppose, I'm, I'm thinking of somebody becoming stronger if, if we're looking outside of ourselves for, for these views, uh, either in partnerships or, or the workplace mm. or, or family. Are there ways of becoming that little bit more congruent yourself? Or you know, what are your thoughts around how to find another version of the deity that's perhaps healthy and realistic? 
So where I look is the, the normal child to adolescent to adult model, which involves, when properly done, when leads to thriving, involves a large degree of differentiation. Now, I don't mean a large degree of rejection of the parent or rejection of the deity, but that's what we've been doing over the last 120, 150 years, is individuating from the deity. And individuating from the deity, fine, you know, we don't believe in God, or many, many of us don't, but individuating to the point where we take responsibility for ourselves and in partnerships we don't expect our partners to make us happy. There's a caveat to that, I'll say that, tell you that in a minute. In organisations, we don't expect the organisation to fulfil our every need and leave us happy. We take that responsibility back on ourselves as a good, healthy, thriving adolescent does as they move from adolescence through into adulthood. That's really fascinating, Sue. It brings to mind transactional analysis and parent-adult-child. That you know, the, It feels to me like you're saying that that relationship we have with our parents, the deity, our bosses, and our partner, is, is potentially being put into that parental role in TA terms. And that creates an almost childlike reaction in people, that expectation that the responsibility for happiness or success comes from that other person. What I'm hearing you saying there is moving to an adult-adult space, taking full responsibility for our reactions and the way we interact and and, and co-creating in an organizational setting. That it's not the organization's responsibility to give us this incredible space. It's our responsibility to create that as well and noticing whether the other person the other organization is is wanting to stay in that parental role or whether they're willing equally to go to that adult space Uh, the other question that fascinates me is is around how the world is changing and how we relate to that in a different way and we see all sorts of stores disappearing from the high street and different industries disappearing due to technology and the changes in society and that sort of thing. And you're a hugely successful author. While we're on the topic of, of things changing, um, we spoke recently to, to Kevin Watson, who has a background in retail about how things are changing in yeah. retail. Any thoughts around how publishing's changing? Well, um, I've lived through the big publishing crash, which unfortunately came at the same time as the big economic crash. Because even if you love a printed book, and I do love printed books, um, we are now shifting to the internet gives you all the reference material you want. You know, there is no point in publishing an encyclopedia. So publishing itself is moving far more to personal stories, personal connection, uh, to books that give you inspiration. Uh, I don't need to go into how it's all all going technological, but but that is what is happening. But I also think it's a very exciting time for publishing because people are taking publishing into their own hands. Blogging has taken over and, you know, it's a bell-shaped curve. Some are awful, some are brilliant, many are in the middle. Um, But no, I don't think we will go back to that everybody has a library full of books but I do think we'll have books as beautiful objects that we enjoy reading 
but we will have this plethora of ideas and inspirations and facts coming to us, not through books, in inverted commas, but through, well, I guess what we need is a global way of getting information from all around the world at the touch of a button. No, we've got it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. And we're part of it. And we're part of it. We're doing it now. We're recording yes, for it exactly. right now. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, books. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I personally think there's uh, there will be some of us for whom the smell of a book will never be replaced Feed by an electronic yes. uh, form. I do think we'll probably become more discerning. I agree with you in, in that. And what, what we're reading will probably be a little bit different. How exciting. Thank you. Can I ask you to put your futurologist hat on? And what do you think is going to be different in five years' time? I think we'll all be a lot more mature. Um, I am a, a regular Pollyanna on this. You know, I hear people saying, oh, we're all going to hell in a handcart. And I go, you know what? We're not. I'm seeing a lot of evidence of people being more reflective, people wanting to change and achieving change and just generally growing up and not being in that slightly edgy, slightly stroppy, although very delightful early adolescent phase. It's almost like the human race has gone through its childhood. Now, now it's just coming through the early adolescent phase. The young people, I mean, coming back to millennials, um, if I work with young people, and the young people I know personally, they're so much more mature than I was at that age. I mean, they're gorgeous. <laughs> of course there are some bad apples. There are in any group of people. Uh, but I think we'll be more mature, and I think this will be showing more, because you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, we wouldn't have been talking like this. And people wouldn't be interested to listen to it, and now they are. And therefore, I'm an incurable optimist that in five years we will be even more mature and we'll have a long way to go. Wow, I think that's exciting. Is there anything else that you'd like to add on our journey of discovery today? I guess just to pick up on your word excitement, that to talk about change and to imagine change and to look back and see the changes we've already made in our lives. Because, I mean, you and I are very different people from, I mean, from when we were adolescents or when we were young adults, let alone when we were born. And I think that's hugely exciting. And I look at my clients, many of whom I take through from meeting, guiding them through their relationship. I have a lot of clients at the moment getting married, a lot of clients having babies, and I'm thinking, I won't see those babies reach the age I am now, but they're going to be far better, far more mature, far more informed. They will have changed, and they will change everything. That's the most exciting thing. I really love your sense of optimism. I, I think it's so important for us to hold that. And in actual fact, that's, that's really one of the missions of the 91 Untold Change project, is... Let's bring back some of that control, because I think as you feel more of a sense of control over the future, understanding what's happening and where we're going, it, it becomes far easier to be optimistic and, and to see the gold that's available to us as we move forward. As you talk, it also brings to my mind Charles Handy and one of the things he talked about with cathedral builders that the world needs more cathedral builders. The, the idea that in the 
days of cathedrals, the architect, the person who had the vision for the cathedral, would die tens, hundreds of years before the cathedral was was actually completed. This idea that your vision would last beyond you, I think, has often been lost in our society these days. And I, I, I just I'm so excited about the idea that maybe a few more people will start to think like that. How, how do we individually become a cathedral builder? How do we let go of that outcome and you know, what we get out of it and make this contribution to the world? Thank you so much uh, for participating today, being part of the 91 Untold Change Project. Uh, I really look forward to our personal adventure as we move forward in your friendship and have always appreciated that so much. And thank you for your words today. It's a privilege and a pleasure, Neil. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, please subscribe. Uh, and if you're willing, take a moment to leave us a rating or review. This podcast is also video recorded. So if you want to see our guests in glorious Technicolor, please head over to YouTube. Uh, I believe it's youtube.com forward slash 91 untold. But as with all our social accounts, just search for 91 untold or the 91 untold change project. And I'm sure you'll find us. Now, of course, this is intended as a project. So if you want to get involved in the discussion, we'd love to talk with you. Uh, please head over to Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter um, and join the conversation. <laughs>